Everybody dies, don't they? The Sandwalker by Fergus Hume. I make no endeavour to explain this experience. Explanation of it is impossible. I can conceive no theory upon which to base even the most slender attempt. It baffles me. It has always baffled me. And it will continue to baffle me. Yet, the impress of the thing loses nothing of its vividness with time. It's as clear before me now as it was within a few hours of its event. I believe I heard a ghost knocking. I am certain I saw a ghost moving. Indigestion, fancy, an overwrought and distorted brain, you will say, no doubt. I wish I could think it was. But it wasn't. The sequel to that glimpse of the dead was too terrible, the cause too pertinent to the effect to permit for one moment of any attribution to disorder, mental or elementary. No, what I saw was actual self-existent. I will set down the facts for you as they occurred and you shall explain them away, if you can. Then... If you remain unconvinced, go to Gartham, by the German Ocean, and hear what the folk there have to say. They are a stodgy people, incapable utterly of the most insignificant hyperbole. They will tell you this tale plainly as I tell it to you. They believe, as I believe. It was in the summer of 96... I was travelling in Woolens for the great Huddersfield firm of Carberry and Crank, furnished with a gig and a fast-trotting mare. It was my duty to exploit the more scattered parts of the country, where the railroad was still unknown, and civilization, as we use the term, tarried a while. Gartham is the name given to a certain wide, low-lying plain shut in from the North Sea by mile upon mile of sand hills. They are heaped up like hummocks along the coast. It was along a kind of causeway, running straight through many miles of grain that I drove that hot July. I had never been in these parts, and I rejoiced at such ample evidence of fertility. It argued prosperity for those around, hence good business for myself and my employers. I made up my mind to remain there for at least a month. I left in less than half that time. As if the plain itself were not sufficiently damp and low-lying, the village of Gartham had been built in a kind of central depression, immediately beside the river. In other respects it differed but slightly from the ordinary English village, save that there was no inn. Close by the tower of the rubble-built church there was a pothouse, licensed for the sale of liquor, to be drunk on the premises but I failed there to get sleeping room either for myself or Tilly, my weary mare. Darkness was close upon us, and I was worn out with my day's drive. There seemed little prospect of comfort, even had I gained admittance to this miserable hovel, but that was denied me. The landlord, a bulky, monumental lump of indolence, stood in the doorway and effectually blocked all entrance. A dozen or so of idlers collected to admire Tilly and amuse themselves at my expense. 
And I realised that there were worse fates than that of being cast upon an uninhabited island, even in this England of ours at the close of the 19th century. While I was in this plight, arguing with the landlord and endeavouring to arrive approximately at the sense of his dialect, a being, human by contrast to those around, made his appearance from out the crowd and approached my gig. He turned out to be the village schoolmaster, and those around called him Muster Abram. Are you looking for a lodging? he said in a smooth and by comparison strangely civilised voice. I am, I replied, soothing Tilly, who, small blame to her, in no wise appreciated her immediate surroundings. I'm Dick Trossel, C.T. to Carberry and Crank, if you've ever heard of them in this forsaken hole. C.T., repeated Master Abraham interrogatively, cocking his one eye, he'd lost the other, which was as bright as any robin's. A commercial traveller, said I in explanation, or bagman, if you like it better. You don't comprehend Queen's English, I see, in these parts. Hardly, when so abbreviated. But if it really be board and lodging you seek, you can get that only from Mrs. Jarzel at the beach farm. There was a murmur from those at hand, as he said the name, and I thought a somewhat dubious expression upon the faces of one or two. I didn't on the whole feel drawn towards Mrs. Jarzel and her farm, and I looked at the schoolmaster inquiringly. Utterly ignoring this, and vouchsafing me no reply, he proceeded straightway to climb into my gig without so much as by your leave. There was neither modesty nor undue hesitancy about Master Abraham. We will get on then to Mrs. Jarzel's farm, said I, a touch from the whip until he was off at a good spanking trot in the direction Master Abraham had indicated. In a few moments we were out of the sight of the hangers-on and driving through the street into another causeway similar to the first. In the distance we could see the house lying under the lee of the sandhills, a dismal sort of place it seemed, and wholly solitary. Yes, uh, yonder is the beach farm, said the schoolmaster, and Mrs. Jarzil. He stopped suddenly so that I turned to look at him. What on earth is the matter with this Mrs. Jarzil? Nothing, nothing. I was merely wondering, not so much if she could, as whether she would accommodate you. You see, uh, Mrs. Jarzil had some trouble with her last lodger. He was a botanist. He called himself Amber, Samuel Amber. Some two years ago it was. He boarded at the beach farm, then suddenly he disappeared. Disappeared? Good Lord, what do you mean? Exactly what I say. He walked out of yonder house one night and never returned. We were close to the house now. It loomed up suddenly in the mist which lay thick and heavy over the sand hills. I felt horribly depressed. Apart from the intense gloominess of the surroundings, the damp and darkness and desolation, all of which had perhaps more than their due effect upon my jaded nerves, I was conscious of an indefinite sense of uneasiness. This one-eyed creature at my elbow made me decidedly uncomfortable. I haven't a robust nervous system at the best of times, and he, with his sinister innuendos, was fast gaining a hold upon me. There was a daughter, you see, he went on before I could speak. Oh, uh, there was a daughter, was there? I repeated, somewhat relieved. It might be, after all, that he was nothing more than a mere scandalmonger. 
I fervently hoped so. Yes, uh, and Mr. Amber made love to her, at least, uh, so it's supposed. At all events, she disappeared too. At the same time as the man. Lottie was her name, continued Master Abraham, utterly heedless of my query. And a pretty pink and white creature she was, with the loveliest golden hair. I used to call her Venus of the Fen. She was at the farm when Amber first arrived. After a while he left, and she with him. He didn't return for a twelve-month, and then only to... to disappear. What on earth are you telling me all this rigmarole for? I don't care tuppence for any of your Ambers or Lotties or Venuses either, for that matter. If the girl was as pretty as you say, I don't blame the man for going off with her. I presume she was a willing party to the arrangement. Mrs. Jarzel will have it, that Amber forced her daughter to elope with him. You see, he returned a year later, alone. Well, what explanation did he make? None. None whatever. And what did the lady have to say to that? Nothing. Amber took up his residence at the farm as before, and remained there until... till he disappeared. Upon my soul, I was beginning to feel thoroughly scared. Do you mean to tell me that Mrs. Jarzel got rid of him by foul play? Oh, dear me, no, nothing of the kind. Mrs. Jarzel is a most religious woman. Then, what the... Perhaps you will kindly make yourself clear. For what reason do you retell to me this parcel of rubbish? Only this. He laid his skinny hand upon my arm. We were turning into the drive which led up to the house. He pointed with the other hand towards the sandridge. Only what? The man nodded. Then he whispered to me. The sand walker, you know? An elderly woman had come to the door and was standing there. The chief thing I noticed about her was her determinedly masculine appearance. For the rest, she was a veritable study in half-tone. Her hair, her dress, her complexion, in fact everything about her, was of various shades of grey. Her mouth denoted a vile, if not a violent, temper. My reception was anything but cordial. In fact, at the outset, she refused altogether to take me in, but under the persuasive eloquence of Master Abraham, she relented so far as to agree to board me by the week at what to me seemed an exorbitant charge. She was evidently grasping, as well as religious, a highly unpleasant combination, I thought. But in the circumstances, I had no option but to accept the inevitable. It was a case of any port in a storm. As I proceeded to drive round to the stable to put up Tilly, a thing which I invariably attended to myself, Master Abraham accompanied me. And somehow I was glad even of his company. There wasn't a living soul about. I asked him why this was. Mrs. Jarzel keeps no servants, he replied. She hasn't kept any since Lottie and Mr. Amber went away. Or rather, to be precise, since Mr. Amber disappeared. How is that? She can get none to come here, or to remain if they do come. They're afraid of the sandwalker. I asked him point blank what he meant, but I couldn't get anything out of him. Whatever you do, don't go onto the beaches at dusk, was all he said. Then he vanished.
I say vanished advisedly, for though I ran after him to the door for the moment, I couldn't see any sign of him. I rushed on round to the corner of the house and came plump onto Mrs. Jarzil. Master Abraham, I gasped. Then Mrs. Jarzil pointed down the road, and I saw a flying figure disappearing into the darkness. Why has he run off like that? I asked. I began to think I was losing my senses. Everyone runs off from Beach Farm, replied the woman, in the coolest manner possible, and with that she left me staring in amazement. I don't think anyone could dub me a coward, but this place unnerved me. Both within and without the house, all was mysterious, weird, and uncanny. My spirits sank to zero, and my nerves were strung up to a tension positively unendurable. Even the bright light from the kitchen fire filled me with apprehension. I couldn't touch food or drink. Mrs. Jarzil gliding about the room in no wise reassured me. Masculine and ponderous as she was, the deftness and stealthiness of her movements were uncomfortably incongruous. She spoke not a word. She totally ignored my presence. I began to loathe the woman, but I determined that anything was better than the horrible suspense I was enduring, so I went straight for the thing which was making havoc of me. What is the sandwalker, Mrs. Jarzil? At the moment, she was polishing a dish cover. As I spoke, it crashed onto the floor. I never saw a woman turn quite so pale as she did then. Who's been talking to you about the sandwalker? Master Abraham was my answer. By this time, she was visibly shaking. Fool, she exclaimed, a triple fool and dangerous too. See here, you, Mr. Trossel. I'm willing to board you, but not to answer your silly questions. And if you don't like my house and my ways, you can leave them both. I could do without you. God knows I've had enough of boarders. Though it is rash, and for all I knew, dangerous, willy-nilly, the name Amber slipped my tongue. But she'd regained her self-possession now, and laughed contemptuously as she picked up the dish cover. I see Mr. Abraham has been telling you my story. It's not a very pretty story, is it? Yes, Mr. Amber was a scoundrel. He carried off my daughter Lottie to London. Aye, and he had the boldness too to return here after his wickedness. I said nothing. It was my duty to forgive him like a Christian, and I did. Although I'm a mother, I'm a Christian first. Poor Lottie. Poor child. I wonder where she is now. Do you know where Mr. Amber is? Yes, Abraham told you, no doubt, that he disappeared. One would think he'd been caught up into the moon, the way the fools round here talk. Yet the explanation is perfectly simple. The man was accustomed to walk on the beaches at night. There are quicksands there, and he fell into one. How do you know that? I found his hat by one of the worst of them. He'd sunk. I'm glad he did. He ruined my life and Lottie's. But vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And this sandwalker, who? What is it? That doesn't concern you. I told you enough. I'm not going to answer all your silly questions, she reiterated. Not another word would she say. Still, I felt somewhat relieved. 
Abraham had contrived to surround with an atmosphere of mystery what after all was purely an accident. I saw that now, and I was able to go to bed in a much more tranquil state of mind than I would otherwise have done. My room was just off the kitchen. I hadn't been in it more than half an hour when I heard Mrs. Jarzel at her devotional exercises. I could hear her reading aloud certain biblical extracts of a uniformly comminatory character. Her voice was particularly resonant and booming. A choice seemed to me to range from Deuteronomy to Ezekiel and back again. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them. The wicked are overthrown and are not. So, for half an hour or more she went on until I was in a cold perspiration. Then she knelt down and prayed. I was in hopes she'd unbosomed herself for the night at all events. But then followed such a prayer as I've never heard. The ban of Jeremiah was a blessing to it. She cursed Amber, dead though he was. She cursed her daughter and called down upon her unfortunate head such visitations that I confess I shuddered. The woman was raving, yet all the time I could hear her sobbing, sobbing bitterly. The whole thing was ghastly, revolting. I would have given anything to get away. At last she ceased, and I presume went to bed, though how she could sleep after such an indulgence was a marvel to me. But perhaps now she'd so assuaged her wrath exhaustion, if not relief, would follow. I hoped so. At all events, she was quiet. After a while, I got up to make sure that my door was securely fastened. Then I scrambled back to bed and fell into an uneasy, fitful doze. So I got through the long night. I never once slept soundly, and when I awoke in the morning, I felt but little refreshed. With the light came the sense of shame, I was inclined to deal severely with myself for my, as they now appeared to me, absurd apprehensions of the previous night. I made up my mind then and there that I should be a downright coward if I carried out my determination to leave the place. My room was comfortable and the food was good and I rated myself roundly for being such an impressionable booby. Besides, I knew enough to make me curious to know more. Albeit as silent as ever, I found Mrs. Jarzil civil and composed enough at breakfast, so, although I hadn't succeeded in getting rid wholly of my aversion to the place, I started off in quest of business, saying that I would return about five o'clock. I soon found out that so far as business went at all events, I had fallen on my feet. The very excellent woollen goods of Messrs. Carberry and Crank appealed to these fen dwellers. They were a rheumatic lot, but that was more the fault of the locality than them themselves. At any rate, the local dealers seized upon my samples with avidity, and I booked more orders in the day than I was accustomed to in a week in some places. I returned, therefore, that evening to the beach farm in the best of spirits, but at the gate I encountered Master Abraham. He soon reduced them to a normal level. Well, how did you sleep? he said. I thought, with a twinkle in his eye, like a top, of course, I always do. You heard nothing at your window? Of course not, what should I hear? 
then uh, you didn't go onto the beaches. Certainly not. I was only too glad to get to bed. Besides, were you not at particular pains to advise me against going there? Yes, uh, perhaps I was. And I repeat my advice. If you do, it'll come to you at the window. What in heaven's name do you mean, ma'am? I mean the sandwalker. At that moment, Tilly made a bound forward. She hates standing, and there was nothing for it but to let her go. The schoolmaster took himself off when I drove up to the door. But I silently swore at that skinny Abraham for bringing back to me the uneasy feelings of the previous night. His warning still rang in my ears. I couldn't get rid of it. I was determined I wouldn't pass the night in ignorance. I resolved to take the bull by the horns and face whatever there was to face then and there. After a high tea, that was between six and seven o'clock, I mentioned casually to Mrs. Jarsil that I was going for a stroll. She neither bid me go nor stay, so over the sand hills at the back of the house I scrambled until I found myself on the seashore. The beach was very dreary, or was still, save for the gentle swash of the wavelets breaking in upon the ribbed sand. There was but little wind, to right and left of me there stretched an interminable vista of sand, vanishing only to blend itself in the distance with the heavy mists, which even at that season of the year hung around. The little landlocked pools were blood-red with reflection of the sun. Though the offshore of the sea and the sun were ablaze with crimson light, I felt an awful sense of desolation as I sat there in the dip of a sand hill watching the departing sun ring its changes on the spectrum. The crimson merged to amethyst, the amethyst to pearl, until in sombre greyness the light shut down upon the lonely shore. A mad, purposeless impulse seized me. With a whoop, I ran down the firm sand to the brink of the water. I stood there for some moments, looking out to sea. When I turned... The mists were thick even between me and the sandhills. Darkness came down fold over fold. Every moment the fog became more damp and clammy, the sense of desolation more intense. I was isolated from all that was human, from God for aught I knew. Then I thought of the quicksands, of Mr. Amber, of Mr. Amber's hat found lying there, and I ran back, as I thought, to the sandhills. But I must have moved circuitously, for I couldn't reach even their friendly shelter. I lost my bearings hopelessly. Where the sea or where the hills, I knew not. I rushed first this way and then that, heedless and without design, intent only on escaping from the enshrouding mists, from the awesome desolation. Suddenly, the sands quaked under me. I stopped. The fate of Korah and his brethren flashed through my mind. My heart drummed loudly in the stillness. The mists grew thicker, the night darker. Then it was. I saw it beside me. At first, I thought it was mortal, human, for its shape was that of a man. With an exclamation of thankfulness, I endeavoured to approach it, but try as I might, I couldn't get near it. It didn't walk. It didn't glide. 
It didn't fly. It simply melted in the mist, yet always visible, always retreating. That was the horror of the thing. My flesh creeped. I felt an icy cold through every pore of my skin. With awful insistence it was borne in upon me. I was in the presence of the dead. Yet I was powerless. I could utter no cry. I couldn't even stop myself. On, on I went, following that melting, receding thing, until suddenly my foot stumbled on a sandhill. Then it became mist with the mist, and I saw it no more. I scrambled up the hill and wept like a child. How I reached the beach farm, I can't tell. I stumbled, blind with terror, into the lamplight of the kitchen. I almost fell into Mrs. Jarzil's arms. She uttered no word of surprise, but sat there staring at my terror-stricken face and quivering limbs, silent and unsympathetic. At last she spoke. You've seen the sandwalker. In God's name, what is it? God has nothing to do with the sandwalker, she replied. It is holy of hell. I could speak no more that night. By help of some raw spirit, I managed to pull myself together sufficiently to scramble into bed. The very sheets were a comfort to me. At all events, they were between me and it. I was utterly exhausted, and for a few hours I slept. I woke suddenly, with every nerve on the stretch, every sense acute, almost beyond bearing. Mrs. Jarzel was vociferating in the kitchen and sobbing between whiles. Then, as surely as I am a man and a Christian, I heard three loud knocks upon the window pane. Mrs. Jarzel turned her imprecations into prayer. In her deep voice she boomed out verses from the Psalms. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. I could stand it no longer. I flung myself out of the bed, wrapped the coverlet around me and rushed into the kitchen. Mrs. Jarzel was kneeling, her face poured with perspiration. She paused as I appeared. There were three loud knocks at the door. What, oh God, what is it? I cried. The sandwalker. Then she prayed again. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the cover of thy wings. I made for the door, but Mrs. Jarzel seized me by the arm. Don't let him in, don't let him in, he wants me. It's Amber, I tell you, it's Amber. Amber, the sandwalker? Yes, yes, he's the sandwalker. He wants me, down on the beaches. If you open the door, I am bound to go. He draws me, he compels me, but the Lord is my strength and shall prevail against the powers of hell. I had to prevent her from unbarring the door. She flung herself upon it and fumbled with the lock in a frenzy. I dragged her back, fearful lest she should admit the thing outside. Gradually, she grew more calm until at last she stood before me with a composure almost as terrible to behold as had been her frenzy. I have resisted the devil and he has fled, she said. You can go to bed now, Mr. Trussell. You'll be disturbed no more. There'll be no more knocking, no more knocking. She caught up the candle to go. I detained her till I took a light from it. Then I went to bed. I kept the light burning all night. 
but there was no more knocking. Next morning, not a word passed between us about what had occurred. I ate my breakfast and drove off to my business. In the main street, I met Abraham. I hailed him. Is there no other place where I can find a lodging? I asked him. Ah, so you've been on the beaches? Yes, I was there yesterday evening. You've seen the sandwalker? For God's sake, don't speak of it, I said. For it terrified me, even in the open day, here with the sunshine hot upon me. And you've heard the knocking? Yes, I've heard everything, seen everything. Let that suffice. Can I find another lodging, I ask you? No. There's none other in the district. But why need you fear? It's she, not you, the sandwalker wants. Aye, and he'll get her one night. You know this sandwalker, as you call him, is Amber. All Gartham knows that. He's been walking for a year past now on the beaches. No one would go there now for any money you could offer them, at least not after sundown. I warned you, you remember. I know you did, but nevertheless I went, you see, and this sandwalker saved my life, for he led me back to the sandhills when I had lost myself hopelessly in fog. It's not you he wants, I tell you, it's she. Why does he want her, I asked. The man's tone was very strange. Ask of the quicksands, he replied, and with that disappeared in a hurry. I was getting quite accustomed to this and would have been surprised had he taken his leave in anything approaching a rational manner. Now, you may perhaps hardly credit it, but I tossed a shilling then and there to decide my action in the immediate future. Heads I go, tails I stay. The coins spun up in the sunlight. Tails it was, so I was to remain. And in that devil-haunted house... Well, at all events, I was doing a brisk trade. There was some comfort in that. During the next ten days, I drove for miles over the district and did uncommonly well everywhere. I found that the legend of the beach farm was universally familiar and they all shook their heads very gravely indeed when they learned that I lodged there. In fact, I'm not at all sure that this wasn't of assistance to me rather than otherwise. I became an object of intense interest and no doubt of sympathy had I known it. After that terrible night, there was a lull in the torment of the sandwalker. Occasionally it rapped at the door or the window, but that was all. As for me, I walked no more on the beaches. But the time was near at hand when the devil would have his own. It came one evening, about six o'clock. There had been heavy rain, and the marshy lands were flooded, and the mists were thick around. Overhead all was opaque and grey, and the ground was sodden afoot. I was anxious to get home until he was doing all she knew. On arrival, I looked after her, as was my wont, first and foremost. When I'd made her comfortable for the night, I returned to the kitchen. To my surprise, I found Mrs. Jarzil in conversation with a girl, in whom, from Abraham's description, meagre though it had been, I had no difficulty in recognising his Venus of the Fen. She was certainly pretty. I agreed with Abraham there. She was crying bitterly whilst her mother raged at her. 
They both stopped short as I entered. A sense of delicacy, no doubt. Whatever is the matter? I asked, surveying the pair of them. Oh, sir, you're your mother's new lodger, aren't you? said the girl. Master Abraham told me she had one. Do please ask her to hear reason. Do, I implore you, sir. I will allow no one to interfere with my private affairs, said Mrs. Jarzel, stamping her foot. If you are wise, you'll not seek to make public your disgrace. There is no disgrace. I've done nothing to be ashamed of, I tell you. No disgrace? No disgrace in allowing yourself to be beguiled by that man? To be fooled by his good looks and soft speeches? What do you mean, mother? I have nothing to do with Mr. Amber. Liar, you ran away with him. What more could you have had to do with him, I should like to know? Lottie's spirit rose, and with it, the colour to her cheeks. I ran away with him. Indeed, I did nothing of the kind. It was you who made me run away. You treated me so cruelly that I determined to go into service in London. I was sick to death of your scolding and your preaching and your praying and this dismal house and these horrible mists and never a soul to speak of. Sick to death of it, I tell you. That's why I went. Mr. Amber, indeed. This with a toss of her head. I have more taste than to take up with the likes of him. I met him as he was leaving here. I was walking, and he offered me a lift. Abraham saw you. Abraham saw you both, interrupted her mother savagely. He told me you'd eloped with the man. That was a lie. I parted from Mr. Amber at the London railway station. From that time to this, I've never set eyes upon him. For my own sake, I made him promise to hold his tongue. He did, he did cried Mrs. Jarzel wildly. God help him and me, he did. He returned here, but he said nothing, made no explanation. I believed he'd ruined you. Oh, now, oh, now, I see it all, and you have ruined me. Oh, mother, what do you mean? Why didn't you let him speak, or why didn't you write and explain? I, believe, I thought he'd robbed me of you. And I revenged myself upon him. Revenged yourself, I cried. I began to have an inkling of what was coming, but Mrs. Jarzil paid no heed to me. She shook Lottie furiously. Do you know what your silence has cost me? She was beside herself. Now, it has cost me my soul. My soul, I say. Oh, why did you let me believe him guilty? I killed him. I murdered him for your sake. It wasn't vengeance. It wasn't justice. It was crime. Crime and evil. You... Killed Mr. Amber? Yes, I, I killed him. I swore he should pay for what he'd done. His own curiosity did for him. I played upon it. I lured him into the quicksands. The quicksands, I repeated, horrified. I, I placed a lantern on the brink of the most dangerous of them, the woman continued feverishly. He used habitually to walk on the beaches at dark. His curiosity did the rest. He had to see what that light was. I knew he would. It was the last light he ever saw in this world. Yes, you call it murder. It was murder, but it was your fault. Your fault. And now he walks and taps at the door for me. He wants me. He wants me. I, I thought I had justice on my side. That I was avenging your disgrace. And I fought with my soul. Oh, how I fought. But now, I see he's right. It's I who must now be punished. I must go, I must go. 
O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lottie lay stretched on the floor. She'd fainted. I placed myself between her mother and the door. I daredn't let her out. Where would you go? I cried, seizing her by the arm and frustrating a desperate attempt to get away. She was fairly demented and seemed possessed of strength, almost demoniacal. To the beaches, to my death, let me go, let me go. An eye for an eye, I say, a tooth for a tooth. That's the law of God. Hark, listen, he calls, he calls me. I could hear nothing but the howling of the wind. I must go, I must go, I must. She was too quick for me. Before I had time to stop her, she was away into the desolate night. I rushed after her. In her present condition, there was no knowing what she might do. Clearly, her mind was unhinged. I could hardly see for the rain. It was nearly dark too, but on through the mire and the mist I went. I jostled up against a man. It was Abraham. I remembered it was he who'd caused all of this. And with the thought, I lost control of myself. I gripped him by the throat. You dog. You liar. Lottie, the girl has come back. Uh, I, I know, he gasped. I, I was coming up to see her. Leave me alone. What do you mean by this? You deserve it and more, you villain. You know well the girl didn't go with Amber. You lied to her mother and you made her think so. You're in love with her yourself. The man's death lies at your door more than at hers. She's gone to the beaches, to her death, I tell you, unless she's stopped. Then I realised I was wasting time. I hastened on, regretting deeply that my feelings had so got the better of me just then. It was blowing a gale, that it was not till I'd crossed the sand hills that I realised it. Then the full blast of the wind struck me. It was as much as I could do to keep my feet. I couldn't see the woman anywhere, though I peered into the gloom until my head swam. Not a sign of her or any living creature could I see. There was nothing but the roar of the wind and the sea, and the swish of the driving rain. Then I thought I heard a cry, a faint cry. I ploughed my way down in the direction whence I fancied it came. I became aware that Abraham had followed me. He was close behind me. Together we groped blindly on. He'll get her this time, shouted the man. Come on, come on, I roared at him. Yonder she is. And yonder, the sandwalker. The wretch hung back. Then a gust of wind, more concentrated and more fierce than before, seemed to rend an opening in the fog. Two shadows could be seen fluttering along. One, a man of unusual height, the other, a woman, reeling and swaying. She followed the thing. As we gazed, a light appeared in the distance, radiant as a star. Its brilliance grew and spread far and wide through the fog. The tall figure moved up to and past the light, the other following, always following. She staggered and flung up her arms, and a wild and despairing cry rang out above the elements and the light gradually died away, and the wind howled on, driving the mists across the sinking figure. Slowly she sank into the sand, deeper and deeper. One last terrible moan reached us where we were, then she disappeared. For the moment, the storm seemed to hush, then all was darkness. 
So that was The Sandwalker by Fergus Hume. Let me tell you a little bit about Fergus. So the first thing to say is his proper name was Ferguson. And that was after his mother's maiden name. She was Mary Ferguson. So he got the first name Ferguson. This wasn't uncommon in that period to use the mother's maiden name as a Christian name for one or more of the children. But he preferred Fergus. And Fergus was born in Worcestershire in England, though his father was a Glaswegian doctor. And we presume at this time an alienist. Every asylum had its doctor. And the, his father was the, the doctor, the steward of a the county pauper and lunatic asylum. I did my thesis, you know, my, in my master's in mental health on the development of the system from the poor laws. So there were, there were, the asylums were originally the poor houses as well. And then they developed and the idea that people who were mentally ill needed treatment rather than just kind of being locked up, um, developed during this period. Anyway, he emigrated age three with his dad and mum to Dunedin in the South Island of New Zealand. And his dad set up the Ashburn Hall, the name of the lunatic asylum in Dunedin. He went to school at the Otago um, School for Boys and then the University of Otago. Otago's the, the area around Dunedin there. And he trained to become a barrister and was admitted to the New Zealand bar and then jumped ship and went to Melbourne in Australia and became a barrister's clerk in Melbourne. However, he had literary ambitions and he wrote plays, but nobody would look at them. I know that feeling. Uh, and nobody had anything to do with them. In fact... Then somebody stole one of his plays and put it under their name, and that was his first a bit of publicity. Seeing that he'd got no luck with plays, he studied what, what the market at the time. He probably had a, a calytics report. Now, if you if you if you ever self publish your books, you know what that is. But if you don't, you don't. But it's a market report of what's what's selling, and the idea is you look at look what kind of books sell, and you write that kind of book. So there was a mystery at the time, so he thought he'd write a mystery. And he wrote this story called The Mystery of the Handsome Cab, um, set in Melbourne, in the poor areas of Melbourne, based on this bestseller. And it was, nobody would publish it. So he published it himself. He paid for 5,000 copies and sold out within three weeks. On On the crest of his success, he sold the rights to the book. And then it went on to be one of the most popular mystery novels in the late Victoria, in the late 19th century but he didn't make hardly any money out of it. And it was said that a study in Scarlet by Conan Doyle was inspired by that book. And so Sherlock Holmes was born out of old um, Fergus Hume's work. And Fergus Hume then, after he, he wrote more books, became successful, went to England, ended up living in Essex. Now, he never married, and the, he, he lived as a lodger with different people. So we don't know even if he was gay, and you know, because obviously gay men couldn't actually come out and they would just live with friends. But it doesn't look like that because he lived with a man and his wife for a long time in in Essex, in a little place in Essex. Uh, And he was deeply religious. Although we hope not like Mrs. Jarzil of this story. And he went round in his later life lecturing to to help reform young men and uh, talk at different societies. And then died and left only a modest amount of money in his marked, is an unmarked grave in Thundley in Essex. So an interesting character. And we see 
we wonder we, we wonder what our lives will, would look like say if somebody had just done a bit of research on me and would would say you know born at such and such a place did this did this did this and in a little snapshot there's our life anyway hume he he, he died in 1932 so he wasn't um so he was how old was that 16, 1865 to 1932 come on everybody 55 45 77 no that's not bad you know especially in those days so there he was. It sounds an interesting character anyway. And going to this story, The Sandwalker, well, the sand, he wrote 130 novels. And this is a collection of short stories. And just as he wrote mysteries, you can tell he's a mystery writer, actually, from the form of this book, I think, this, this story. Uh, it, the collection it's from is The Dancer in Red. And it is a, almost a classic ghost story in some ways, with with the with the impress of a mystery story. So I'll tell you what I mean by that. So first of all, the function of ghosts in stories is very often revenge. Wrongs will be punished. I mean, this is in the Bible and it's in Greek myth as well. The 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 dead and in Hamlet, you know, the the dead want revenge. So that is its first theme. That this man Amber is dead and he comes back and and First of all, Hume lets us believe that maybe our our um, narrator may be at risk, but it turns out that he's not. And in a sense, that means the stakes aren't so high, so it kind of lessens the tension a bit for, for us as the audience. There we have. I was telling him, you know, here he is, written 130 novels, but I would tell him that, you know, you make, make the stakes higher. But we, that's only revealed a bit later on. And the twist is, a nice twist is that it turns out we we kind of come to the conclusion that probably Mrs. Jarzil has killed the guy, Mr. Amber, you know, lured him to his death in the quicksand. Reminds me of old Tarzan movies. Now, you probably aren't old enough, but you may be old enough to remember the black and white Tarzan that used to come out. We used to watch it on a Saturday morning, and they were always falling in quicksands. And near where I live, just I live on the coast, and we have some pretty dodgy sands there. And so this resonated, actually what resonated with me, there's that story that here, the tide goes out a long way. We're on the West Coast, they're on the East Coast, but the tide goes out and there are lots of sandbanks and the channels of water run between the sandbanks and of course they can fill in behind you um, because of the way the channels are. So you can be on a sandbank and you can turn around and you have to wade, and this has happened to me when I was younger, um, you have to wade chest high through, through the water. And one particular time it was misty and I got this disorientation and I didn't know which way was which. And I was actually going out to sea, uh, running across the sand, but heading towards the sea. And then I righted myself. And, uh, but that was pretty scary. So that, that actually was a little frisson for me. I thought his description of the ghost, the creature of the mist was really good, actually, the way he described it. I really, I probably hear as I slowed down when I was doing that. I thought that was good. So what I want to say, the twist was, of course, Mrs. Jarzil is old, old school, Old Testament, a bit like my great grandmother. Um, and uh, the sin is a, it's all about punishment. There's not much love in it. It's about punishment and sin. And uh, and so she, and she says, "Vengeance is mine," saith the Lord. We're supposed to leave vengeance to the Lord, but of course she takes it in her own hands and kills the man. But she. 
but she kind of can feel okay about that because it's still vengeance after all and sin is still punished, so she doesn't feel too bad. But then Lottie comes back and the truth of it is revealed that the reason Lottie left was because Mrs. Jarzil, her mother, was so horrible, nothing to do with Mr. Amber. And the, the deceit has been enabled by the, the one-eyed schoolmaster, Mr. Abrams. So that was the twist, um, and I thought that was quite cool. The characters are very overblown, almost to the extent that they can become comic. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, Dickens does pretty much the same thing, you know. I mean, we've got the one-eyed schoolmaster who keeps turning up. Um, why does he keep turning up out of the blue? It's almost like a, an Adams Family story. Or how about in Costello or something like that? Of course, Mrs. Jarzil is like Lurch. There she is, this huge woman who just goes on about damnation. And she's very, very unremittingly unpleasant. The nicest character in this is... Um, is Tilly the mare. She doesn't get a big part, but I was very fond of her because she's she's a good horse. She does what she's told and she does well and she gets weary. And he's endearing, uh, this is like Save the Cat, Blake Snyder, isn't it? Blake Snyder, for those who don't know, is a, the kind of a guru of screenwriting. And he said, to make somebody, it's just a joke, but to make, make, somebody, make your character warm, get them to save a cat. Yeah, so if your character does something nice to an animal, that endears the audience to you. So here's, here's our man with uh, Tilly. And I think actually that, you know, Hume clearly knew what he was doing. His writing is really strong. The sentence construction is easy to read. He uses some formal rhetoric. So he uses anaphora. So he, he repeats the same phrase at the beginning of uh, sentences in a string. And epistrophe. So he does the same at the end. So this is a guy who knew what he was doing. So I think he's deliberately, it's not... He's deliberately made these characters larger than life. And as I say, Dickens does the same thing. So this is late 1800s, so maybe that was what people wanted to read then. It can become almost comic. Uh, you've got to be careful. And if you get comic, you can't really keep the horror. But he manages to have some actually quite chilling moments, particularly out there in the mist, as I said. Um, what more to say about it? It was nice reading a character. Yeah, so where is he from? Yeah, this is probably Norfolk or maybe Lincolnshire. So I was a bit too northern, really. But I got away with it by by remembering that the man is a commercial traveller for a, a Yorkshire firm. So I thought, oh, well, that'll, that'll be okay. I can get away with that. But what was nice was if you if you read people like E.F. Benson or M.R. James or R.H. Molden, their characters are very middle class. But so this guy working for a living, you know, he goes around, so he he seems more down to earth, and I enjoyed reading him. Yeah, so it, it was a yarn, really. It was a great story and a yarn. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. Anyway, we we've I've spoken a lot, so I'm probably not going to tell you about the seagulls, although they're very noisy. My daughter's got another tattoo. This is what they do. One of them. I'm teaching the other to drive. Latterly, she's put it off for a long time. Sheila and I may be moving house. It's all very exciting. Anyway, uh, there'll be more coming soon. Cheers, ears. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm David Sweeney-Bear, narrator and producer of Tales from the Vault, a hand-picked selection of creepy classics, weird tales, and short stories from the greatest authors of all time. Each story is an immersive audio experience brought to life for your listening pleasure. 
You can find the Tales from the Vault podcast at youtube.com slash dsbaudio. Also on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Or you can visit my website at dsbaudio.com.